0: welcome to the wittenberg hour t.s Eliot said in murder in the cathedral those who put their faith in worldly order not controlled by the order of god in confident ignorance but arrest disorder make it fast breed fatal disease degrade what they exalt hello and welcome to the wittenberg hour where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. What are fallacies? How can the study and understanding of logic help us navigate the times in which we live? Joining us today on the Wittenberg Hour is Pastor Jason Broughton. Pastor Broughton teaches logic for Wittenberg Academy, Pastor Broughton, thank you for joining us today.
1: Oh, thanks, Jocelyn. Great to be with you.
0: We hear the word fallacies or even logical fallacies thrown around, especially when political debates or elections are at hand. What are fallacies and how do we recognize them?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So typically when we hear the word fallacy, we think of just error. When in logic, we use the term fallacy, we have more in mind an error in something particular. So we're not just talking about false things. We're talking about an illegitimate use of one of the acts of the mind. So there are three acts of the mind involved in thinking. Uh, The first act of the mind is simple apprehension, or sometimes we might refer to it as coming to terms with someone that you're speaking with or writing against or writing about. And that's having in your mind's eye precisely what you mean by the words you're using. The second act of the mind is the act of judgment. So, That's the act of the mind where we're either affirming something about those terms that we've apprehended in our mind, or we're denying something about it. Uh, And then the third act of the mind is the act of deduction or drawing conclusions. That's where we begin to put these judgments together about the terms that we've apprehended And we put them together so that we can draw conclusions further than what the original terms state. So a fallacy comes in two forms. We have informal fallacies or material fallacies, and those are the ones that you most commonly come into contact with, things like equivocation, so fallacies of language, or ad hominem attacks those are fallacies of diversion the same thing with like the genetic fallacy the, or the tu quoque fallacy and, but then there are formal fallacies and that's when we're dealing with an actual illegitimate use of the third act of the mind so the 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 informal fallacies and the material fallacies, those are an illegitimate use of the first act of coming to terms with something. So it usually has to do with language. It has to do with um, how we understand terms and how we're using those terms. Whereas formal fallacies are dealing with how we're actually drawing conclusions, how we're actually using the the reasoning function of our arguments. Uh, So fallaciousness doesn't deal with necessarily false claims, but rather an illegitimate use of either terms or language, which is material fallacies or informal fallacies. Um, And secondly, formal fallacies, the illegitimate use of the act Of reasoning. So it's more difficult to spot the latter, that is, the formal fallacies, than it is to spot the informal fallacies. Those are well-known and very common, and you can, you know, you can see them just listening to interviews and listening to debates and reading the newspaper. Those are very easy. The, The formal fallacies are more difficult because we rarely speak or write in logical form. And so you have to take ordinary sentences and put them into logical form in order to figure out whether or not you're dealing with a formal fallacy or not. So, the first way of recognizing an informal fallacy is just to know what the informal fallacies are. So, you have to know what equivocation is. Uh, Equivocation is when you have a word that has more than one meaning. uh, And you have to make sure that that word is being used with the same meaning every time you say it. Or ad hominem attacks, those are attacks against the person. And that's why it's a fallacy of diversion, because it's diverting your attention from the actual argument, the things that are being discussed, to something else in order to either win the argument or or sway someone else's opinion. So the informal fallacies, I think, are a lot easier to recognize than the formal fallacies. And that's why we teach formal logic, so that you can begin to use your mind in such a way to translate ordinary standard English speak uh, into logical form so that it can be evaluated for its form and then evaluated for its truthfulness. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. As you were speaking, I was thinking of the current political climate and in particular, the debate that happened not long ago between president Trump and former vice president, uh, Biden.
1: Do you mean it- the, the, the two men saying, get off my lawn?
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, for sure. It, it seemed that perhaps this was a test case for How many informal fallacies can we pack in to one span of time?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's difficult to, on both sides, you know, whether you're a supporter of President Trump or a supporter of Vice President Biden, it's difficult to be terribly harsh on them because the very format of the debate is we're going to ask you this gotcha question that assumes a particular answer so we're going to start a fire a really raging fire and you've got to put it out in 2 minutes so i can be a little more understandable because the very format of the debate is inimical toward actually arriving at clarity that's not what that format of that debate format is there for it's there to sway opinion one way or the other, not necessarily to give those who are watching it or listening to it any more reason to vote for or against someone it's not there for information right it's it's the very form of the debate is is set in order that um, you either end up liking one guy or or liking another guy instead of actually looking at what the the primary issues are and how they deal with answering the questions of how will you govern
0: that that makes sense.
1: So yeah, there were a lot of informal fallacies going on. I mean, particularly, you know, name calling. That is the way that that debate is structured. That's not to say that you couldn't rise above it, but it's very difficult. When you're put in that position, because you're immediately put on the defensive, uh, it's very difficult to rise above that.
0: For sure. And that kind of brings some clarity to why the debate, if we can call it a debate, was so very emotive in nature, rather than an orderly back and forth. That brings some clarity there, for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, and there's a there's an assumption that goes behind that kind of format, too. The assumption is that the American people can't actually follow an argument. The assumption is that the American people can't actually make decisions for themselves. The only way they can make a decision is based on emotion. Right. And I'm sure that there are a number of people who are like that. Uh, But I think a a good chunk of Americans, they they actually want to hear and think about what the issues really are. The form of the debate is what we see going on in our culture all around. There isn't a debate. It's just a bunch of people yelling at each other to get off my lawn.
0: Right. And an essential part of debate is listening Mm -hmm. and the form of debate or the format of whatever happened was, was not necessarily either. They, they just chose not to listen or they weren't set up to listen because of how emotionally charged it was. And to a certain extent, I think that the there there's a chunk of the American citizenry that wants a WWE entertaining, you know, knockdown, punch out event rather than civil discourse.
1: Yeah. I mean, and that's always been the case. There's always part of that uh, going on. I mean, we we talk about the media as being, you know, particularly bad about showing foibles of others, but this has been the case for a very long time. Uh, I live in Illinois and you can go to the presidential library of Abraham Lincoln And you see, you go through that, and you see the things that were said about Abraham Lincoln in the newspapers of his day, and you can draw some pretty uh, neat, uh, I guess you can draw some pretty neat arrows directly related to how the media acts today as it was acting against Lincoln. So it's not like this is new, Uh, We tend to think it is, but I'm sure there are some aspects that are new. One is just the ever-presentness of what's going on in the media, that that you have news media 24-7 instead of you get it once a day and that's it. So those things have changed. But the actual manner in which it happened. Isn't that much different in in terms of how the media handle things? Because you know, people, despite the fact that a great majority of people aren't learning logic, you, they're still fallen sinful humans who want to try to win. And so, if that's your goal, I should say, if your goal is just winning, we're going to continue to see all of these things. If your goal is um, seeking and arriving at the truth and, and the things that are best, well, that, that goal sets the stage for then how you interact with people and how you go about achieving that end. And at this point, it seems like we have kind of some hardened sides in terms of we just wanna win.
0: Right. We're going to get back into the media in just a moment. But knowing that the world of logic is larger than just fallacies, at least I assume it is, how can, we, how can understanding logic in general help us sift through all the information coming at us. You brought up the 24-hour news cycle. In other words, when we listen to politicians or we listen to the news media and we say to ourselves, well, that's not logical. Is that the phrase we should be using? Is that's not logical synonymous with that doesn't make sense?
1: yeah I mean, in a way, it does to answer your your last question. really, what we mean by it's not logical is that doesn't follow mm. um, So what logic does is, well, I mean, let's go all the way back to the beginning and how we were created, right. So God when God created everything he created it in an orderly manner. So if you read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 he's always making distinctions and he's making separations. He's saying, you know, here is light and I'm going to separate light from darkness. And these are two different things. The light's going to be called day and the darkness is going to be called night. And so we have a distinction between day and night. Those things are separated. He separates land from water, and he gathers the lands together, and he gathers the waters together. He separates and distinguishes every living being, whether it's plant or animal, according to their kinds. They have a specific genus, right? They fit into this kind of being, and they fit into that kind of being. A a genus is just a, a generic way of generally categorizing something. So this is the order in which all things were made. And so when we learn logic, basically we're dealing with things as they are. We're we're learning to think in an orderly manner, just as God created things in an orderly manner. We're learning to make distinctions among different kinds of things to say, this is a table and that is a chair. Those are distinct things. And if I say table, no matter what it's made of, you can see, you know what a table is. And so we're, we're defining our terms. We're coming to terms with the things that we're speaking about. And we're doing that in an orderly manner. So we're saying, okay, so here is a table, but it's a specific kind of table, right? This is a eight foot table, or this is a wooden table, or this is a three legged table. So what we're doing in logic is we are beginning to learn how to think in an orderly manner and then to make judgments about it. Either affirming something about something else. So, like the standard example is, you know, all men are mortal. We have in our mind what we mean by the term men. That could be all male humans. It could be all mankind, depending on the context. But we have to have that in mind, and we are affirming of all of mankind the fact that they are mortal, that they die. And so this is how we are uh, this is how we learn to think orderly about something or logically about something and since we know since we know it to be true that all men die we could then say well i'm a man therefore i will die i'm mortal So we haven't learned really necessarily anything new. We don't have new information necessarily, but we've been able to draw conclusions about specific things because we've begun to think in an orderly way. And I think that's the the great benefit of learning logic is that it just helps you to think in an orderly manner so that you can take what someone says and you might immediately think, well, that doesn't seem right. But then you have to ask yourself the question, why isn't it right? So what went wrong? What's the illegitimacy in the use of terms or the use of judgment or the use of deduction or reasoning? What went wrong in that use? And that thats that's what we're dealing with when we're dealing with logic is we're trying to find out what went wrong in the thinking or what went right in it. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. And I think that speaking of the media, at least for me, the newscasters that I can stomach observing, watching whatever the case may be listening to, if it's a podcast or, or a radio show are the ones that consistently define their terms or demand that the guests on their uh, on their broadcast define their terms and challenge them to define their terms because of that need for order And I really appreciate how you've drawn those two things together because. Really, in our world today, and in all times, really, this this need or desire for order amidst disorder or amidst chaos, having distinction and having a clear-cut definition really breaks through the, the chaos and allows for communication.
1: Well, yeah, I mean that that is our adversary, and by adversary, I mean the devil that is his, his main uh, means of operation that's his modus operandi, his m o. He sows seeds of chaos, of disorder. When God makes everything in an orderly manner, the first thing that is done to the man and the woman in the garden in a perfectly ordered polis in a in a perfectly ordered city established by god is to bring disorder right so he goes to the woman and not to the man and he questions her and she doesn't follow the order that god has put in but follows her own order and so we you get the replacement of god's order with some other order, that will always bring chaos and that will always bring a discord. And so this is what we find happening constantly, because this is our adversary's goal, is to bring about chaos and with chaos, discord. As those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, and so our minds have been redeemed, we are able then to see how God has ordered things and then order our minds within that so that we don't become part of the problem. Satan doesn't care what side you're on right so long as he can so long as he can bring discord so there's this famous and I don't know if it's an actual quote, but I've heard it as being quoted or attributed to Hitler, that Hitler didn't care. In the end, I mean, he wanted to win, but he thought once the Allies started making war in World War II in the same manner that his German army was making war, he said, well, if I lose the war, I've already won, because I've brought the same kind of thinking and the same kind of acts into being in these allied powers as they are in the Axis powers. So whether I win or lose, I've won in his mind. And I think Satan has a similar way of thinking. He doesn't care that we might be on the side of the right, but if we can, in our even our own tactics and our own thinking, if we can take on that same discord, and chaotic way of uh, of bringing things about then he's one
0: right and going back to the example of satan approaching eve in the garden i think sometimes we gloss over the fact that approaching eve was already a disruption of the order that God had given mankind. You know, we yeah, focus but... so much on the the words, you know, did God really say which of course is important, but disorder was already brewing when Satan approached Eve instead of Adam.
1: Right. We shouldn't expect our adversary, that is Satan, uh to play by the rules. Right. Uh, but we should expect ourselves when the rules aren't played by, either to leave the game or say that's against the rules. Right? We should we sh- w- we should not follow him in the manner in which he, he plays. In general, what logic helps us do in every area of our life, whether it's political or in the home or in the church or just in society, is that it it teaches us how to think in an orderly way. And when whenever you're dealing with order, then emotion and feelings gets pushed to the background instead of the foreground. And so whenever you feel, you know, whenever the red flares of emotion begin to happen when you're in a debate or a conversation or an argument, you know, that's a sign that disorder could be brewing. (laughs) So you just need to kind of check to make sure that you continue to think in an orderly way. And I'm not here talking about not being zealous, uh, we should have zeal in our uh, in our argumentation. We should have some passion, uh, passion in in the right sense, not that we should be ruled by our passions. Right, but some of that gets into more of rhetoric, uh, and you know how you end up making your case uh, instead of the actual content of the case, and how to think in an orderly way. They're very closely related, but my primary goal, you know, in teaching all these classes is just to teach how to think. Even though we have all of these syllabi out there that say, you know, the goal of this class is to teach one to think critically about X, Y, and Z, right? You're never actually taught to think. How can you think critically about something if you don't know how to think? And we think we think that thinking comes naturally to us, but it doesn't because we're fallen.
0: Yes. (laughs)
1: And so we have to be educated in how to think. This is why, you know, the sciences teach the scientific method because you have to be taught how to do it.
0: So speaking of science, (laughs) (laughs) we don't just have politics and elections going on right now we also have a pandemic or did have a pandemic. I'm I'm not sure where we are in the midst of of this. But let's talk pandemic briefly. Okay. How can knowledge of logic help us sort through everything there? We're told to follow the science. You had brought up the scientific method and the fact that there is an order to how we process information and things that we don't know. We're told right now, we hear all the time, follow the science, trust the science. Is this logical? Is science intended to be followed and trusted?
1: Well, on the one hand, it depends on what you mean by science. Oftentimes, what happens is we mistake science for deductive reasoning. Let me back up a a bit. Deductive reasoning is 100% certain. So the example that I gave earlier about, you know, all men are mortal, I am a man, therefore I am mortal, that is a deductive argument, which means that And it's a valid deductive argument. So it has the right form. It doesn't have any formal fallacies. And since it has the right form, when we're talking about deductive arguments, if the premises are true or the the first two statements of that argument are true, that means the conclusion necessarily must be true. 100%. There's no wiggle room out. Uh, so in that case, you're dealing actually with facts, right? Things known, for sure. The problem with science is that we tend to think of it in as factual and a form of deductive reasoning, when in fact it's a form of inductive reasoning. And what I mean by that is we have a general theory or thesis, and we seek to disprove it or approve it by the evidence, but we never have all of the evidence. We can have a good chunk, we can have more or we can have less, but we never have one hundred percent certainty it's always ends up inductive reasoning is always a probabilistic argument. and what I mean is all things created equal or all things being equal on the whole and for the most part these things are true the same kind of reasoning is what you see in criminal investigations and that's why the juries are are, are said to take in the preponderance of evidence what does the most evidence point to or why we have you know reasonable doubt is there enough doubt there to indicate that, taking into account all the other evidence, is this, is this enough doubt to say that that didn't happen or that did happen? And our problem is that when we when the term science is being used today, it's being used in a way that indicates that it's a deductive form of argumentation, meaning there's no probability. That it's for sure certain, but the reality is that science is—that is not what science is. Science is not a deductive argument; it's a pr- inductive argument. So it's always dealing with probabilities. It's always dealing with preponderance of evidence. It's always dealing with, on the whole and for the most part, all things being equal. And that's not an, a bad form of argumentation. But you know, you since you're dealing with probability, you can be wrong. Right. Right. It's not 100% certain. And so, first of all, you have to recognize when you say the science says or the medical community says, they're dealing with probabilities. And oftentimes, they're dealing with the best evidence that they have right then and there. The medical community And I think a lot of scientists are are being hijacked by a use of the term science, which it was never meant to be used for. And so you have to take a look and say, does all of this evidence that they're citing, is that the full picture of what's there? Uh, Do they give you A preponderance of evidence to say that this is the case. And if they do, okay, so then that's their job, to give you that evidence. And then the next job is, are the recommendations that follow that evidence, are they in line with that evidence? Or are they not taking into consideration other things? And oftentimes science, that's not the goal of science. Science doesn't take into consideration every single aspect of life, but just one. Right. Right. So, so does the conclusion of, you know, whatever, say, the medical community or whatever, quote unquote, science says, is that taking into consideration the full picture of the human being or what should be done because these things might be true? Or these things are true because that's the best evidence we have. And so we have to act as though they are true until proven otherwise.
0: And this really is the beauty of science. And the the thing that makes science interesting because it's a, a constant exploration. But that's also the thing that makes science Reliable and unreliable all at the same time, because it is constantly looking for the next piece of evidence to plug in to prove or disprove what has already been discovered. And if you come from a point of view, or to use your words, to hijack science and make it something that it is not intended to be. Does that put us in the realm of propaganda?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, it's a form of sloganeering, which is, you know, a material logical fallacy, informal logical fallacy, sloganeering. It's a way of, uh, it's kind of a form of, of, of equivocation as well, where you have, you know, a particular term and it's being used in a way that it was never meant to be used. You're switching the way it's used, you know, midstream, so that it seems as though you're using the same term, but in fact you're not. Propaganda carries with it a certain judgment, and so I'm sure that there are some who are quite willing to propagandize and hijack, you know, the medical community and science in order to attain their ends. I think just for the average person, I mean, assigning motives, again, can complicate things for us instead of simply saying, well, whatever the motive, it doesn't matter, this is the wrong use. But, you know, having those discussions means that, again, you have to take emotion out of it. You have to actually begin to think in an orderly way and to consider what other people are saying and right now i think it's not our orderly way of thinking that is 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 winning the day but rather our emotions are winning the day and are controlling us so that's why you have these things like the science says how dare you you know kill 200,000 people by not wearing a mask or
0: right you personally Uh, killing 200,000 people by not wearing a mask. And this, the absurdity of some of these claims becomes almost laughable, but at the same time extremely frustrating and sad because a disruption that has occurred that has become very unhealthy for many people and it has nothing to do with COVID-19.
1: Well, I mean, or it has everything because of the response to it. Well, yes. So, um, I mean, one of the, the things that we've learned is that crises don't necessarily make or create character, but it reveals our character. And we're kind of seeing that come forward in, you know, what's happening. And hopefully people are beginning to see they don't like what they see and how they've responded to certain events and they want to make some changes. And so the, the revealing of that character shows us, you know, really where all of our trust is. And, you know, as Lutherans, what our God really is, what our idol is. And this crisis has definitely revealed our idolatry and what we prize most and what we look to most for every blessing. And just like when you go to the doctor and he prescribes you medicine, You go to the pharmacy, and the pharmacist gives you this piece of paper that goes along with your medication, and it says, this is what this medicine does. Here are a list of possible side effects. Oftentimes, we just look at what it does for us, and we do not take into account all the side effects. And we've had a huge amount of side effects that go along with the response to the pandemic that were never considered. Right or if they were were just completely dismissed so again we're not just we're not just physical beings we're spiritual beings as well uh we have a body and a soul and to think only in terms of one and not the other is not thinking about the whole person right and all the things that go uh that You know, the body and soul are interrelated. It's not as though uh, it's one person. (laughs) They're not two people. Right. Right. There's a unity within the body and the soul. You know, the difficulty is we're really bad about making decisions and about understanding probability. We, In other words, we don't understand how to manage risk as well as we think we do. And so oftentimes we either give too much credence to our own actions or too little credence to our actions. And because of that, we always interpret a 75% chance of something happening as a hundred percent. Right. Or, you know, vice versa, 75% chance of something not happening as a hundred percent. I mean, The problem is that, you know, probability doesn't have a memory. So if you have a 75% chance of winning something and you've lost like 10, 15 times in a row, that doesn't mean that it's your time. Right. Probability doesn't remember that you lost 15 times before that. Right. If you play long enough, you know, the odds will fall but you have to play a lot there's a lot of losing in that time frame and so we're just we're bad at making those decisions based on percentages and probabilities we oftentimes as i've said earlier give too much credence to our actions or to our skill i should say and not enough credence to just chance and so we're not always using our way of reasoning in the best possible way. We're not always thinking in an orderly manner enough to say, I am willing to bet my life on that or bet my entire life savings on that. right. So uh, but I, so logic helps you kind of begin to think in an orderly way so that you can you can begin to to sort out how much skill plays into something and that probability doesn't have a memory and that when you have actually something on the line what is the amount of risk you're willing to take and those are good things that we need to work through so I'm not coming down on one side or the other on you know what should happen but there are a lot of things that aren't happening in terms of what kind of risks are we willing to bear? And there are risks not just on the physical side, but also on the spiritual side, the side of the soul. And those are all uh, the all of those risks should be taken into account in terms of the whole person. And if it and if it deals with the whole person, then it's dealing with the whole community, the entire country not just in terms of economics or not just in terms of health but it if you deal with the whole person you're dealing with the entire nation as it actually exists not just one problem that we're looking at at a time right and that's been a that's been i think lacking in our discussion of these things
0: certainly and It's possible that there is, because as we've discussed previously, the level of emotion rather than the level of order and taking a step back and looking at things. You know, we have the amped up political world, you have an amped up pandemic world, you know. All of these very emotional. And then add in that, whether it is related or unrelated, add into that the reality of these protests that are still going on at different places throughout our nation. That also is an emotionally charged situation. Is there possibly, and, and I don't know if this relates necessarily to logic, but just an emotional exhaustion that people just can't handle it anymore?
1: We are easily led astray by our emotions. We are apt to be deceived when emotion comes in becomes involved and so the issue with i think the protests is that we have had uh, a number of uh, mediating institutions you know namely civil government and the media that are trying to make this about emotion instead of about what happened. Right. And again, this is, this is a tool of our adversary, the devil, who desires chaos and from chaos, discord. So, you know, when God puts things into place and he puts them into place in an orderly way, you know he and this is what the 10 commandments are about it's about keeping order distinguishing what is yours from what is someone else's um and you know where that line ends here we have a mass disregard of the 8th commandment where we are casting judgment we are affirming or denying something about something when we don't have any evidence at all and again this is uh, this is to the detriment of not just the person whose name is being dragged through the mud but this is to the detriment of all people because it creates in our minds automatically, what side are you on? Right. So it forces discord. Instead of saying, um, the system still does work, despite the fallenness of all those who are involved. That doesn't mean we get everything right all the time but on the whole and for the most part they're gotten right and there is a there is a way when they go wrong to make them right and so the assumption from the start is that's an unproven assumption that the system is broken right so part of you know looking you know at these protests is that it is a sign that people are not necessarily thinking in an orderly manner that they're moving and acting upon just sheer emotion and that that is, a, uh, that's a detriment to, uh, our way of life. it's a detriment to the principles upon which you know our nation is founded
0: right and even thinking about the whole concept of innocent until proven guilty in the court of law we we aren't proving innocence and i think sometimes people forget that that the court of law is all about proving guilt and where guilt is not proven innocence has to be assumed
1: right right
0: so all in all we have quite a trifecta here in 2020 (laughs) we have we have politics we have a pandemic we have protests logic you have shown us can can speak very well to all of these things and help us sort through and sift through and try to make sense of what is going on and to check ourselves perhaps when our thinking becomes disordered and we get caught up in the emotion of all of these things as you rightly pointed out we can't separate body and soul and so having the law having ordered thinking in place to to help us sift through everything is definitely a gift does logic have any limitations In other words, is there anything we as Christians should consider when applying logic to these situations that we've discussed?
1: Yeah, in a couple ways. Uh, The first way is that our faith goes beyond logic, it doesn't go against it, but it does go beyond it. There are things outside of logic that logic isn't intended to, to deal with. So supernatural things, things that, you know, even though God is logical, that God is orderly, he is outside of that, right? So while our faith can't be incoherent, and I, what I mean to say is it can't go against logic. It certainly goes beyond it. There are certain things that logic simply doesn't account for, because it's dealing with the actual ordered and created world. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, going back to what we talked about with regard to being not just physical bodies, but body and soul, logic is just a tool in the greater art of persuasion or in communication. It's not the only thing, right? So we want to be logical, but we don't want to be computers. I mean, we're not computers. Right. Because we also have a soul side, right? We also have feelings. And feelings shouldn't be discounted altogether. God gave us feelings for a reason. And so that's where the art rhetoric comes in how do we use logic and feelings together so that we can give voice to the whole person and not just to one side of the person right so while it's true that facts don't care about your feelings people do care about feelings and you know as people we're not simply beings, factual beings walking around and dealing only with fact. Sometimes we're dealing with probability. And so we have to recognize uh, you know, what kind of logic we're dealing with and and to use logic not as a bludgeon to beat our opponents up or the people that we're arguing with to beat them up, but rather to use it as a tool to seek and arrive at the truth in order to persuade to see why this is more important than that. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. And so logic, applying logic and not discounting feelings could actually help us care for our neighbor a neighbor that might have disordered, illogical thinking about this, that, or any other thing, it might actually become a source of logic, might become a source of care rather than, as you uh, pointed out, rather than a bludgeon.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, we tend to think, We tend to think about, well, I mean, all the things that we're talking about, we tend to think of them in terms of the nation instead of locally.
0: Right. And
1: I think what we should begin to try to do is to think not about the nation, but about our closest neighbors, right? So when we're dealing with a people that we disagree, when we're dealing with you know, what I'll call opponents in thinking, the opposing side is not a generic thing. It's real people. right? And so you actually have to engage the real people. That doesn't mean you can't generalize. And so I'm not saying that because there are things where you can generalize on the whole and for the most part. That doesn't make it untrue. If you can, you know, if you're making a generalization, generalizations aren't bad, but they can be disastrous if applied uh, if generalizations are applied in every instance and if they're applied too hastily or too generically instead of actually dealing with real people and their concerns and you know what their responses to particular arguments or facts are so it's always better in my opinion, to deal with the local, uh, the local instances of those opponents than the generalizations that are working around the nation on the whole and for the most part, because that's where you can you can't <laughs> you can't change the mind or persuade a generalization. You can only persuade and change the mind of real instances of people. And so the generalization is there and is helpful in being able to order things, but it's, it's only there again as a tool to help kind of see where people are coming from. It's not, again, it's not there in order to, uh, to be a bludgeon. So, we just have to be very careful that we don't uh, begin to think of everyone as the generalization when you're dealing with specific people.
0: Pastor Jason Broughton teaches logic for Wittenberg Academy. Pastor Broughton, thank you for being with us today.
1: Oh, great. I, I loved it. It was fantastic. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.